We're starting a new teaching series entitled Let the Light In, Practices of Undivided Devotion. And I'm going to be honest with you, this last week, as I was preparing for this, trying to discern, should I push the teaching series to one side, delay the launch of the series, to speak into the events of this current week, the death of the Queen, and a new Prime Minister, and a new King, like a massive, massive week, but decided to carry on because I think this teaching series will speak into the events of this moment that we find ourselves in. I was encouraged by the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury um, in terms of like this series that we're starting out on. He said this as part of his tribute to the Queen. He says, as deep as our grief runs, and it does run deep, even deeper is our gratitude for Her Late Majesty's extraordinary dedication to the United Kingdom her realms and the Commonwealth, through times of war and hardship, through seasons of upheaval and change, and through moments of joy and celebration, we've been sustained by Her Late Majesty's faith in what and who we're called to be. In the darkest days of the coronavirus pandemic, the late Queen spoke powerfully of the light that no darkness can overcome. As she'd done before, she reminded us of a deep truth about ourselves. We are a people of hope who care for one another. Even as the late Queen mourned the loss of her beloved husband, Prince Philip, we saw once again evidence of her courage, resilience and instinct for putting the needs of others first. All signs of a deeply rooted Christian Faith. Let me zoom in on this statement. In the darkest days, she spoke powerfully of the light that no darkness can overcome. Like the Queen radiated something truly beautiful. A lot has been written about what did she radiate? What set her apart? And I believe it was more than that she carried the best of British values. A lot has been written about that. She carried the light of Jesus Christ. That's what this series is all about. Even in times of struggle, she radiated the light of Jesus. So we're starting a new teaching series. The series has a soundtrack. We sang it earlier. Open up the windows and let the light in. Open up the windows. Your turn. Not bad. Not bad. (laughs) I was expecting less, hoping for more, but that was somewhere in the middle. (laughs) This is what I sense. The Spirit saying to us at KXC and the church, this is Isaiah 43. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Can you see it springing up from the ground? Can you perceive it? Part of the job of a leader, particularly in the context of of the church, is to point to things in the natural that speak of something happening beyond the natural. Um, So I want to point to things that you'll be aware of and and basically suggest maybe they are signs as to what the Spirit is doing beyond the natural. So we're in a new home, King's House. Like our new space? Tough crowd. It's a beautiful space and we absolutely love it. Um, If we rewind like a year or two, this is a a picture of, of the building before we moved in, the front of the building blacked out. The front room, which is the cafe now, um, was a blacked out room. It, this used to be a drama school, so it was a kind of like a, a, a sort of a room where they could practice performances, etc., etc. But the room and the building felt pretty dark. So what's the first thing that we did? We opened up the windows and let the light in. Open up the windows. Let the light in. 
Okay, I'm still expecting a bit more. We're going we're gonna to have another go in a second. Um, but we just knocked through the wall. And, and just look at the building now. Totally beautiful. The architect, and when we had the launch, he said, look, I knew these windows would transform the space. What I wasn't expecting, that it would transform the atmosphere of the street. Like light flooding in, light flooding out. Like could it be that that's what the Spirit wants to do, not just in buildings, but in our lives. Open up the windows and let the light in. So we run a co-working space our co-working. They've had to move home as we, as a church, moved out of our previous building. They've had to find a new home and they've moved into All Saints Church. This is a picture of All Saints Church about a year ago before we took on the space and partnered more with them. It basically been taken over by an escape room, Om Escape. Um, and if you've been to an escape room, you'll know that they have to build lots of small rooms where you enter the room, you get locked in and you're trapped in darkness. Sound good? Some of you are like, yes! Some of you are like feeling a level of panic. Um, but the, out of the outside of the building, it feels pretty dark, right? And when you stepped into the building and saw these rooms of darkness, it felt pretty bleak. What's the first thing we did? We... Oh, real, real uncertainty there. It just needed some leadership, someone to step in. Yeah, we open up the windows and we let the light in. And, and now look at the space. If you're a, a freelancer, you work in a startup, you're looking for a space, a co-working space. This space, like two minutes around the corner on the Cali Road, it is absolutely beautiful. Like, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. Can you perceive it? I believe the Spirit's saying, can you see what I'm doing? I'm opening up some windows. I'm wanting to flood light in. And I believe he wants to do that for us. So the last few weeks, I'm not going to lie to you, they've been pretty stressful for B&I. So we've moved house, just a couple of streets around the corner from where we were living. I'd forgotten that moving house is actually unbelievably stressful. Um, Our kids are back at school, praise God. Um, But one of them has started a new secondary school. That's quite a transition. It's been a, a few weeks of stress and pressure. And what pressure does, it exposes how you're really doing. And I'm clearly not doing very well because what it has exposed and B will vouch for this is, is not really much patience, quite high levels of frustration. So in my own prayer times with the Lord, I've basically been saying, help, like I, I don't like who I'm becoming, like please help. And this is what I sense the Lord say to me. He said, Pete, let me reorder your internal world. What you're doing with this new house you're moving into, deciding, oh, let's put that mirror there. B's making most of the decisions. Um, let's, let's move these boxes into that room. And, and, and we're ordering chaos in our new home. Just felt like the Lord say, you're doing it in your house. Let me do it for your life. Let me reorder your internal world. In other words, open up the windows, Pete, and let the light in. And as soon as he spoke that, I was drawn to a quote from C.S. Lewis, brilliant book, Mere Christianity, and he says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, 
he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What if the Spirit was saying to you, I'm doing a reordering work. I want you to open up the windows because I want the light to come flooding in. So how do we let the light in? Let me read a few texts for you. Psalm 24. This is a beautiful psalm. We actually sang a bit of it in the refrain earlier. Swing wide, you heavenly gates, let the King of glory in. But this is earlier in the psalm. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who can enjoy the thickness of his presence? And the answer is the one who has clean hands and a... Let's do that one more time. The one who has clean hands and a... Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. How do you let the light in? The answer is the pursuit of purity. And when I talk of purity, I basically mean an undivided heart, undivided devotion to Jesus. The psalmist says, one thing I ask, one thing I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. In other words, this is my highest priority. The psalmist also says, Lord, give me an undivided heart that my one priority might be your presence. That's what purity of heart looks like. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the those who desire one thing. They will see God. They will have clarity of sight and they will see his kingdom breaking in upon them. If you desire a greater measure of the presence of God in your life and more activity of the kingdom of God, here's my encouragement, desire one thing. Like have a purity of heart about you. There is a direct link between purity of heart, desiring one thing and clarity of sight. Right, seeing things as God sees them. Let me just illustrate this. So um, if I was to put on these glasses, I, I smeared mud all over them this morning. Now if I, if I rocked up like this, you probably can't see it. Maybe if the, the camera zooms in. Come on, Toby, I back you for this moment. There's basically, come on, come on, well done. I can see panic. Toby's panicking, but you, you got this. You got this. Um, I, I can't really see that much. There's a, a real blodge of mud right there, and, and they're dirty. If I walked into KXC like this, you'd be like, that's strange. Very, or has he been running around in the mud? What's, what's going on? This, this is strange. I can't see very clearly, right? But spiritually speaking, I think most of us walk around like this, questioning why can't I see very clearly? And why can't I hear the voice of the Father? And why can't I see what the Spirit is up to? And Jesus says, well, it's really simple. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who desire one thing, they will see God. I'm going to get rid of this. It's disgusting. Jesus actually said, he said, the eye is the lamp of the body, right? Starts with purity of heart. Purity creates clarity. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, you can't really see straight, your whole body will be full of darkness, 
Open up the windows. Let the light in. How do we become pure in heart? If you've got a Bible, this is going to be our our key text. We're only going to be in it for a little while. So Mark 10, this is the same passage that Kath spoke um, on last week. She did a phenomenal job. If you missed her talk, um, you can catch up with it online or through the podcast. Um, But this is a famous story of Jesus encountering a rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This is like a knee slide moment. I love this. This is what I have in mind. Like, just go to go, Wembley, runs up, slides on his knees, and then begins a conversation with Jesus. It probably wasn't like that. Um, but he basically says, good teacher. I'm sure he had a tie around his head, um, just come from the disco. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why would you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And then this is the key bit. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour mum and dad. And with great excitement, this rich young ruler is like, I've done all of that. Yeah, 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 I've done, done all of that. Jesus says, great, well, go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. And at that point, the rich young ruler recognised he couldn't do that. He couldn't let go of the idol in his hand, which was his wealth. Jonah chapter 2, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The rich young ruler couldn't let go and went away sad because he knew he was missing out on grace. Now, the question for us, why does Jesus name only six? Was he like, like, there's ten, I know there's ten. Oh, gosh. Oh, well, let's start. And he basically gets the sick and is like, six and got nothing left. No. Like something profound is going on. He misses out for to expose the idol for the rich young ruler. So he names six what four are absent. Here they are. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord and remember the Sabbath. And this gets summarized by Jesus in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus basically doesn't name the four which are about loving God, desiring one thing, that which brings about a purity in heart because he knows this guy's done all six and he's incredibly proud of it, but loving God with heart, soul, mind and strength. Well, he hasn't done that, right? He's gripping onto an idol and he's forfeiting grace. This is the message that I've been preaching on for the last year. I'm like a dog with a bone. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. If you want the kingdom and we as a church, we really, really want the kingdom. If you want the kingdom, it starts with undivided devotion to the king. Purity of heart. One thing I ask. One thing I seek, that I may dwell in your house. Lord, give me an undivided heart. If you take the king out of kingdom, you're left with Dom and he can't help you. Which is my reworking of a J. John gag. He said about 30, 40 years ago, it was a classic at the time. He said, if you take Christ out of Christian and you're left with Ian and he can't help you. It's, it's, it's a great point, absolutely true. I need to work on the, um, the impression. Um, Absolutely right, right? We, we want the kingdom, but how many of us can say, 
above all else. I just desire one thing and it isn't wealth and it isn't fame and it isn't dot, dot, dot. It's the presence of Jesus Christ. When you have that level of purity of heart, you're going to see the kingdom of God and you're going to see God himself. So how do we become undivided? And the answer is, this is a battleground. Like choosing purity of heart. If you want it, right, you're entering a battleground, contested space. Um, The language the New Testament offers for this is that there are three enemies of the soul. Like the transformation of the soul, becoming Christ-like, the person you were created to be. There are enemies that don't want that journey to take place. And this is the language you find throughout the New Testament. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the systems and the narratives that surround us, the flesh, our own appetites and our desires, and the enemy who's constantly speaking lies over us. Together, these are at work basically saying, don't open up the windows. Like, don't let the light in. Don't be pure in heart. If you've read this book, you'll be familiar with this Um, structure. This is a brilliant book. Live No Lies, John Mark Comer. I think the best of his books, and he's written a number of good ones. Um, This is his most recent book. And he basically says, here's how these three enemies of the soul are at work all around us. It starts with deceitful ideas. These are the whispers of the enemy, right? Jesus says that the, the enemy, the devil, is a liar. He's the father of lies. And when he speaks lies, he speaks his native language. And he's just whispering lies all the time. Like, oh, Marriage, that will bring fulfillment to you. Oh, money, that will make you happy. Success, that will heal your broken heart. All these lies that bombard us, right? So deceitful ideas, the lies of the enemy, tap into disordered desires, the longings and the appetites of our heart. Yeah, I do want to be fulfilled. Yeah, I do want to be whole. Yeah, I I do want to be happy. So these lies tap into disordered desires and they get normalized in a sinful society. So deceitful ideas, the lies of the enemy, tap into our own disordered, need to do a spell check on that one, sorry about that, desires that get normalized in a sinful society. Left an E out. Some of you are like, really? Is that? Yeah. Anyway. In his book, in the early chapters, he talks about this guy called Evagrius Ponticus, who's a 4th century monk. And this 4th century monk decided that he was going to leave his life behind him, his family, his job, his career, and he was going to go into the wilderness and have a fight with the devil, which sounds great, right? So he left everything behind him, and he wanted to do this warfare to overcome these temptations that were sort of dragging him down. And apparently people started talking about it in the nearby towns and villages. Have you heard about this guy? He's gone into the wilderness to have a fight with the devil. Um, And then reports started coming back. He's actually doing pretty well in this battle. I I think he might be winning. Um, People started to go and visit him in the wilderness because they wanted to know how to overcome evil, like how to overcome temptation. And he would offer wisdom from his own struggle in the wilderness. And the wisdom started to spread. And before long, thousands were heading into this nowhere place in the wilderness to sit at the feet of this monk who had learned to battle, engage in warfare to become pure in heart. 
And towards the end of his life, a friend of his basically said, look, there is so much wisdom that you have to offer. You should write a book. So at the end of the fourth century, he wrote this little book called Talking Back, brilliant, The Monastic Guide to Combating Demons. Like, who wants to read that? The monastic guide to combating demons. Like, I'm in. Um, I haven't actually read it. Um, but anyway, he basically named in this book eight thought patterns that drew people into darkness. Right? And that eight thought patterns actually got refined over time and became the foundation for what you probably know as, and I know as, the seven deadly sins. Envy, wrath, slothfulness, greed, gluttony, lust, and pride, right? And throughout the last 1,500 years of church history, the church has basically said, yeah, that sounds like a good summary of like the carnal flesh left to its own devices. We become envious. We compare all the time. We become bitter and judgmental. We become slothful and greedy and gluttonous and lustful and proud. Right? And then the church said, well, if that's what sinful humanity looks like, what does the redeemed humanity look like? And they started to talk about seven virtues of a godly life. Kindness. Patience, diligence, and generosity, self-control. I've put two together. Some of you are thinking, seven virtues? There's only six on the list. I've put two together for self-control, if that's okay with you. Um, temperance and chastity. Um, anyway, self-control and humility, right? So this is what the sinful humanity looks like. This is what becoming like Christ looks like. The big question is, is how do we move from the sinful life to the virtuous life? And the language that we use is deliverance, being delivered from evil. Straight from the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from, well done, deliver us from evil. Language of deliverance terrifies some because they've watched exorcisms or documentaries about it and you've got someone writhing on the floor, frothing at the mouth, right? It can look like that. Um, but most of our prayer is deliverance prayer where we basically say, God, help me. Deliver me from this situation. Deliver me from this temptation. Deliver me from this evil, from the lies of the enemy and my own disordered desires and the narratives that swirl in the surrounding culture. Deliver me. If we're going to open up the windows and let the light in, we're going to have to become more familiar with talking about deliverance. Amen? People are sure, but yeah, we are going to have to do that. Um, so what does deliverance look like? Three words, and I'll unpack them very quickly before we land. Blood, sweat, and tears. Blood, sweat, and tears. I said it's a battleground. Blood, the blood of Jesus. The sweat of our brow. In other words, this is going to take effort. We participate in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. We actually do participate in that and the tears of repentance. Let's talk about blood, the blood of Jesus. And I want to do that briefly by talking about rats. So some of you will have heard me preach about this before. It's a, a subject close to my heart. I grew up with a phobia of rats. 
And because of that phobia, friends and family have consistently sent me facts about rats that they thought would help me in my phobia, like you're never more than six feet away from a rat. Now, normally that's downwards, but depending on where you live, it could be actually just literally six feet away from you. Um, here's another stat, a fact that someone sent me. Rats multiply so quickly that in 18 months, two rats could have over a million descendants. <laughs> That's great to know, isn't it? It's encouraging to know that stuff. Here's an article someone sent me that a nest of giant rats discovered who are growing huge through cannibalism. Again, that's helpful to know that they're actually growing absolutely massive. Um, now, this phobia, it wasn't totally debilitating, but it wasn't nice. Um, and what it meant as a kid, pretty much every evening, my bedtime routine, even as a teenager, is I would look around the room, I would look under the bed, I would look in the cupboards, I would do like a, a full recce of the room. And when I was convinced there was no rodent activity, at that point I would close the door so nothing could get in. I would get into bed, I'd wrap the duvet around me so there were no entry points. The only entry point was my face. <laughs> did that create anxiety? Absolutely it did. Um, <laughs> and like fast forward at university where we did live in a property with some rodent activity. Um, I struggled to sleep during my finals. Like, th this really wasn't a good thing in my life. I hated it. I, I still hate rats. Um, but if you've battled with a phobia, you may well have heard of um, cognitive behavioural therapy. So Albert Ellis, the kind of intellectual father figure of irrational emotive behavioural therapy, came up with this idea, the ABC of CBT, the ABC of cognitive behavioural therapy. He basically says, where well, there's a, a chronic fear of phobia, there's an activating event, there's some corresponding beliefs, and then there's some consequences in how you behave. So for example, my activating event, when I was five years old, I had a hamster. Um, in the middle of the night, my hamster, have no idea how, got out of the cage, climbed up onto my bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night with what I thought was a rat scratching on my bare chest, right? So I smack this thing off my chest. I turn the lights on. I realize it's actually my hamster hobby. I pick him up. I put him back in the cage, and over the next two days, I starve him to death. That was a joke, by the way. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Just want you to know I didn't do that. It would have been more healing to me had I done that. But I just fell out of love with hobby. Right, that was the activating event. So after that, every night, I was checking that the cage was fully, fully locked. Um, and that then progressed into looking under beds, looking under cupboards, everything like that. So it developed into some beliefs that rodents hate me. Um, that they know I'm afraid of them and they can smell fear um, and that they're somehow going to get onto my chest and nibble me in the middle of the night. I know it's crazy. That's the thing with, you know, phobias. You know they're irrational, right? But somehow they get a grip of you. So we can laugh about it, but it wasn't funny for me as a kid. So please stop laughing. That's obviously a joke. Um, so what's the remedy? According to cognitive behavioural therapy, the remedy is you've got to understand what was the activating event and then deconstruct the irrational beliefs. So you go through a process of what irrational beliefs have I developed? And then you just begin to sort of undermine them. Hang on a minute. What harm could a, a rat actually do? Like putting the black death of the Middle Ages to one side, millions of lives lost. But like that to one side, like what damage could a, a rat actually do? And like, 
Like I'm so much bigger than a rat, like 50 times bigger than a rat. And surely rodents are more scared of me than I am of, of them. And suddenly you replace irrational beliefs with rational ones and you begin to slowly overcome fear. That is the gospel of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's an amazing tool. Like I don't want to knock it. It's an amazing tool. But it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I just name that? It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I remind you of what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus doesn't just come along and say, I've noticed you've got some irrational beliefs. Can we just have a conversation where I deconstruct some of those irrational beliefs and replace them with some more rational ones? No, he provides a new activating event, and that's called the blood of Jesus. That God takes on human flesh and he lives and he dies for our sins to separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And he rises to new life. He pours out his spirit upon us and therefore resurrection life is coursing through your veins right now if you're a follower of Jesus. Resurrection life is coursing through your veins right now and when you let that be the activating event of your life the foundation on which you build you realize new belief systems begin to emerge from that like I'm a child of God and he loves me and he has a plan for my life and he separates my sins from me as far as the east is from the west um, and I'm, I'm liberated in him if Christ has set you free you are free indeed and the list goes on new beliefs that begin to shape your behavior you begin to live differently new story activating event new beliefs fuse that with new practices and you get a new nature this is why Paul says when you are in Christ you are a new creation right so blood we've spoken about the blood of Jesus that has power to deliver you but then there is some effort. We participate in this story of redemption. Practices, spiritual practices aren't going to set you free, right? Don't try really hard doing these practices. They will not set you free. The blood of Jesus sets you free. How do you move from Egypt to the promised land? The answer is you need a Red Sea moment, the intervention of God. That is the blood of Jesus sets you free. But there are practices that help you enjoy the freedom that he's won for you, right? So how do we move from these deadly sins, like sinful humanity, the blood of Jesus, you are free indeed, and then suddenly there's these practices that help us live this virtuous life. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be zooming in on these practices, practices of purity, practices of undivided devotion, by which we open up the windows and... You sang it. I, was, I would have settled for just saying it, but there was melody there. I, I love that. We're going to look at encouragement, right? Rather than envy, comparison. We're going to choose kindness. And what's the practice? Whenever you think a good thought about a buddy, you speak it over them, over them and let courage stir in their being. Instead of wrath and bitterness and judgmentalism, we're going to choose to be long-suffering and patient. And we're going to forgive our brothers and sisters. Instead of being apathetic and half-assed and slothful, like we're going to choose to be diligent and watchful in prayer, waking from our slumber. Instead of greed, we're going to choose generosity and start to give. Instead of gluttony and lust, craving more, we're going to choose the path of self-control. And we're going to use our bodies as part of the training ground through fasting. Some of you are like, yeah, I'll be away that week. Um, 
Instead of pride, we're going to choose the path of humility where we serve one another, right? This is the next six weeks, and I'm being really serious. As we bring our brokenness to God, we're not just going to try harder. We're going to pray prayers of deliverance over one another. The blood of Jesus sets us free. And then in that newfound freedom, we're going to start practicing this kind of the way of the new humanity, the way of Jesus. So blood, sweat, tears, tears of repentance. Repentance, confession, it feels like death. Just to break it to you, feels like death brings resurrection life. And we in the church, particularly our wing of the church, we don't really do much confession these days. In fact, some of us have stopped believing that we're really sinful. And therefore, we just have a low view of Christ and the cross and his power to save. But when you're fully aware that you're sinful and you need saving, you have a high view of the cross and a high view of Christ. And there's something incredibly powerful about saying, look, you know these seven deadly sins? Yeah, some of it's at work in my life. It's bringing about darkness. God, open up the windows and let the light in. I need, I need your light. Confession is the means by which we open up the door and let the light in. Right? There is so much power when you confess your sins. Like the book of James, James chapter 5, James says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Gold star for someone. Healed, made whole, restored, redeemed. It's like a thesaurus moment. Thesaurus. Um, <laughs> delivered, right? It starts that moment of confession where you basically say, God, I actually need you right now. Let me just land with a couple of quotes from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was part of a, a group that took training in righteousness very seriously. They wanted to be pure in heart. They had a high view of the cross and a high view of spiritual practices to help them enjoy their freedom. Um, and he knew that confession was a remarkable gift and they practiced it daily. This is what he says. Again, it was a group of brothers, so just aware of the language here, not being very inclusive. But he said this, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. He's not trying to water it down, right? It hurts. It cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to the pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy that's almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, not like general, like I'm struggling with lust, much more like I went to this website and I did this and I did that and I did this and I feel horrific, right? Concrete sins, not general. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Like, whoo, brutal, right? But that's not the end of the quote. He goes on, in the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, which means before God. And here it is. We experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. And now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. This was Bonhoeffer basically saying, when you confess concrete sins and someone speaks over you 
absolution, like you are forgiven. Now go and enjoy your freedom. That moment feels like resurrection life. So every week over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the deadly sins, what this virtuous life looks like, the blood of Jesus and the power for deliverance, and then these practices that help us enjoy freedom. What's the end goal? To open up the windows and let the light in.